Artism Podcast, where we explore creativity, inspiration, and the determination it takes to be an artisan. This podcast is for artisans, by artisans. I'm your host, Kathy Duraghi, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to our next guest. Welcome to the Artisan Podcast, as we welcome Daniel Seberg as our next guest. Daniel is the co-founder and chief content officer of Good Trust and the director of innovation marketing at Moody's. But above all, Daniel's a storyteller. He has throughout his career told stories of brands, of stories of people as a journalist, as an author, as an entrepreneur. He has traveled to over 70 countries and has worked in marketing, communications, product, partnerships at many well-known companies, including Google, as well as many news outlets. I'm so excited to have Daniel here so that we can talk about storytelling and how that impacts interviewing and um, how we can show up as our authentic selves to not only to the interview, but also to um, any role that we, uh, that we start. So with that, let's welcome Daniel. Welcome to this episode of the Artisan Podcast. I'm so excited to welcome Daniel Seberg to our conversation. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Caddy. It's wonderful to be with you and uh, dwell in possibilities as the, the sign over your shoulder reads. And um, yeah, talk about storytelling. So yeah, probably one of my favorite subjects. Yeah, thank you. I, I was fascinated when we had met a few weeks ago just to talk about this concept of storytelling and wanted to bring that to the audience here. Obviously, the, you know, the audience who listens here are all storytellers, whether they're visual storytellers or they're writers or they're marketers. But this concept of storytelling is so important. And as we are recording this, the gardeners have come. So for the audience, just give me a little warning. If you're hearing noise, out of my control. This is all part of our story, right? <laughs> this is part of the story of working from home. Yes, you know? exactly. It right? is what it is. So yep, life in 2022. Yeah, we will speak loudly to, <laughs> to overcome that. But so Daniel, how did you get started on this path? Let's go there first. Yeah, absolutely. And I will keep my origin story, if you will, relatively tight. I would just say that um, I, so my father uh, spent his career as an engineer and electronics technician working with oceanographers who went to the North Pole to study climate change. Hmm. So I was exposed to the um, how does anything work kinds of uh, questions from an early age. Um, my family believes in service, and my uh, sister's a nurse practitioner, so that's a little bit of kind of my orientation in the world. And then coupled with that, my maternal grandmother died of complications from Alzheimer's, and I can distinctly remember what it was like to see her at her 75th birthday party and as an awkward 14-year-old walk up to her with a present and for her to say, oh, this is lovely, dear, thank you, and who are you? and for the two of us to sort of die in front of each other in that moment. So what struck me is the value of our stories and how we pass them on, um, how we convey them. There's sort of the, the, the storytelling or how of, of how we do that. 
There are the tools that we use to tell those stories. There's the subject matter, the people, everything wrapped up in what it means to both tell a story and, of course, to listen and to receive one or to watch one. So that, I think, is what ultimately pushed me into a career of being a journalist. In my case, it was science and technology. Uh, I did a master's degree in journalism with a focus in technology at University of British Columbia a long time ago. And the arc of my career went through working at CNN, um, covering those subjects, including space and environment, and onto CBS News uh, and ABC. And then I pivoted away from being a practicing journalist, if you will, to focusing on technology and I would say helping others use technology to tell stories. So I spent several years at Google and helped to create a couple of teams in service of empowering newsrooms to use technology to tell stories in new ways with data, um, through different tools, training journalists, um, helping to identify new markets and uh, thinking about success metrics and a lot of stuff that newsrooms were thinking about back then, integrating that into their workflow. And then I left all of that about four and a half years ago and went into entrepreneurship, continued to stay close to the idea of storytelling. I worked, co-founded a blockchain startup at one point. I've been an advisor to many startups, started my own company that was about an immersive kind of AR, augmented reality, virtual reality kind of an experience to kind of to, to communicate with people and hear stories of the past. Um, anyway, a couple of years ago, I connected with a former fellow Googler who I didn't know. And we embarked on this journey of co-writing a book together and in parallel building a company called Good Trust, which is all about this idea of digital legacy. So now that we have, the first book I wrote was called Digital Diet, which was all about living with technology. Mm. And now here we are 10 years later and we're all sort of dying with it <laughs> in, in sort of a morbid way. But uh, this is the way that we've evolved through technology and how it captures our stories. Um, and so this is where I find myself, somewhere at that intersection of technology, storytelling, and all of us mere humans. Mm -hmm. Which speaks to me and it resonates with me uh, because I wrote a book uh, about grief and that whole journey through loss and um, mm. you know, certainly memories and stories of our loved ones are, you know, are, are particularly near and dear to my heart and making sure that we're preserving them and, and being able to share that legacy. But you bring up a digital legacy and that's pretty, pretty interesting. And I think what I gathered from what I learned that you had shared with me about your book and correct me if I'm wrong, it's really kind of just being mindful and being aware of the digital legacy and the footprint that we're leaving behind. And right. Exactly. And I mean, to the degree to which if we look back through our or up into our family tree, if you will, and, and the the creative output that 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 um, became the sum total of someone's identity. So, for example, we help maybe or not all of us, many of us have an ancestry or a MyHeritage uh, profile. Right. Particularly as we age, um, you know, we start to think about how to capture all of that. And with just one or two generations earlier, maybe the artifacts that we have of those people are a postcard or two, a letter, uh, a handful of photos. Um, you know, if they, if, if the person lived into the sixties and seventies, maybe there's some video kind of it's, but it's in a format that's hard to share and hard to preserve. And, but now as we've gone into, you know, the two thousands and 2010s and of course into the 2020s, 
that has that output of each of us has grown exponentially. That reflection of who we are, we create 10x what we have of somebody's interest or profile every day in our email and the photos on our phone and you know the accounts we have and social media posts and on and on. And if somebody had access to all of that, you know, if I could see what my grandfather actually created or thought or did or said, I would personally be fascinated by it. Now, for somebody else to come across that, maybe that starts to feel a little like creepy or there are privacy issues and ethics and all the rest of it. But I do think that that awareness part of it that you referenced is something that we've thought a lot about with Good Trust, which is the company, because if somebody passes away, whether in, you know, in your immediate family or even a friend, and you don't know that they have you know, a Facebook, a LinkedIn, still have a MySpace, like all these places where they've got all this stuff, that's sort of an early challenge. And then on a on another level, there's is there some crypto somewhere that you know you don't know about? Is there a uh, you know a retirement account that somebody forgot to tell you about? Is there a password hit you know all of a sudden there are these pragmatic reasons to be aware of all of this too. Mm -hmm. So there's like the emotional and the pragmatic side mm -hmm. to, to know all of this. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I imagine now with creatives and NFTs, that's a whole nother another piece to keep track of. Exactly. And I mean, you know, we, we've we tried to create ways for people to do that through something we call it a digital vault, but kind of this notion that you can assign a trusted contact to help you to, to do this on your behalf after you pass away or to help somebody who has already a family of somebody who's already passed away to take care of all of this. Because the reality is that, you know, the average person spends about, well, the, the exact number is about six hours and 52 minutes a day online. I think through the pandemic, that's probably gone up. So let's just say most of your waking hours during the day are spent somehow connected to the internet. How much of that time you actually are creating something you want to save and remember and pass on to people? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's like 10 to 20%, but still on a daily basis, that's a lot. I mean, just today, you know, if, if I go back and we get those notifications of like a memory, like remember back on this day, right? We all yeah. get those. Right? And those are photos of like, I do not want those photos to get lost. These are photos. And, and it doesn't even have to be some huge occasion, an anniversary, a birthday. Sometimes it's those every day. I'm using air quotes for people who maybe can't see us, but those everyday <laughs> moments where, you know, your your kids do something and you you want to remember when you were building a tree fort. And, you know, those are the kinds of photos you want to pass on mm -hmm. to people. So how to how do I identify those? How to pass them on in a way that feels tangible to someone else to do something on your behalf? Um, this is really what we're talking about with digital legacy. It's the story of of you, just in a digital capacity. Mm -hmm. And who gets to see it? And who gets to access? And it? who gets to see it? And who gets to access it? And this is where you know. And these days, I mean, we're we have some. Uh, AI ways to think about this. So we, for example, you can animate a photo through our site where you can sort of bring it to life, if you will. So if you have a picture from, let's say, the, you know, from 60 or 70 years ago, you can animate it in a way that the person now has some expressions and they oh, start wow. to feel like, mm -hmm. and so you can kind of capture their essence a, a little bit more and, and share all of that. But we're, there are other companies, there's one called Hereafter that allows you to have a conversation with somebody who has passed away, if you ask them some questions, so for example, if I asked you a series of 100 questions about your life, what Hereafter will do is take that data, or you can do it on your own behalf, 
and create a conversational AI experience so that you could learn about your history. And, you know, even after the person passed away, you have these memories and you can use your smart home device and kind of, you know, be with the family and ask them questions. There's a video one called Story File, which you can do with video. You can do as an app on your phone. And it's now sort of talking to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be somebody who's already passed away. They did this with the Illinois Holocaust Museum mm-hmm. at a certain point with Holocaust survivors. So you could ask them questions. So there's th- this is the direction that we're going with stories. They are being created in a digital way, preserved in a digital way, and now sort of passed on in this digital way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was talking to someone yesterday, actually, on another podcast about um, augmented reality and how cool would it be if I, you know, if we could create something where the hologram of a person past could be a conversation that we're having. Absolutely. And, and, you know, today it's possible in a limited way for people who either have the money or the means to, to do that. So, for example, Kanye West gave his wife at the time, Kim Kardashian, a hologram of her deceased father, Robert Kardashian, for her birthday. And she could actually see it and interact with it. And he was sort of speaking to her, you know, if you will, from the afterlife. Um, There's an example of a mother in Korea who uh, her daughter had had died at at a young age, like seven or eight, horribly tragic, about as tragic as anybody can imagine. And what this company offered her was a virtual reality experience to interact with her daughter. They created kind of a digital version of her daughter. And then the mom got to sort of say hi and kind of, you know, bring her back to life, if you will. The mom was so emotional and and watching it is difficult. And there's some part of you that, or at least for me, that's conflicted where you think, is this what she should be doing to deal with Mm. her grief or not? Uh, on the other hand, who are we to sort of, you know, say this is how she feels. She wanted to do it. Yeah. And maybe it's cathartic in some ways for her to experience all this in that way. So th- yeah, fascinating discussions around. all. Yeah, that. for sure. I-, I could talk to you about this for a long time, but yeah. for the purposes of this podcast, <laughs> right. we'll, bring it back to, <laughs> we'll bring it back to creatives. And actually, I think what yes. you're sharing just in terms of, uh, you know, the story we're telling about ourselves online. That's, that's an important piece. Uh, you know, we always, uh, on the recruitment side of our business, we're always talking to candidates about, you know, what does your, you know, what does your online presence depict? Like, mm-hmm. is, is there a through line between what you say you want to do and how you've, you know, created your LinkedIn profile, for example? Mm-hmm. And then you have all these other assets that you're creating. So what what would, could you share with us in terms of our online story when it comes to branding, like our personal brand and how that represents online? Um, is there something that we can tie that back into what is my story as a candidate or my, what is my story as a job seeker? Yes. I mean, look, here's what I would say. First of all, for me personally, I wish that, and I'm a I'm going to call myself a, I don't know, a digital immigrant insofar as, you know, I didn't grow up with the internet and, you know, it was, became part of my life at a certain point. So, but for, of course, a whole other generation that we're talking about, you know, millennials, Gen Z, you know, all of these, they're, this is just what they know. Mm -hmm. And so their life is captured in this digital way from, from the beginning, if you will, right. Their parents are sharing photos of them and then they have a digital presence. So they have a, like a digital self from day one to Mm -hmm. think about. And I think what 
what I wish I could tell my younger self was be authentic you in mm -hmm. every every case, whether it's something you're talking about in a broader public context like social media or something you're sharing a little more privately or whatever it is, just be the authentic you. Kind of imagine that somebody could either look over your shoulder or look at your account or see what you were posting. Just be the same person, even if it doesn't accept who you are, <laughs> which I've gotten better at doing as I've aged rather than I should. I wish I'd sort of figured all this out much, much younger. Right. But, <laughs> right. <laughs> because I think what can happen is that social media, of course, triggers our ego, the sense of projecting. And, you know, uh, I think it pulls out a lot of our insecurities. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we may not be that person in our entirety. When I worked at Google, we used to say that social media was a reflection of, of someone's ego and search was more your id. What are you really thinking? Right. Mm -hmm. So you, you could, if you could see what people's search history is versus what they posted on Facebook could be quite different. Right. Oh, and I think, and I think that there's, I think that prospective employers, my sense is that they can now start to sense that if not detect it or tell in, you know, whether it's within your resume, does that like line up with what you're saying you did or how you conduct yourself, um, all of those kinds of sensitivities to think about. But I think that the, the earlier on in your life that you can just be that one person, no matter what the the medium is, um, and just have that reflected out into the world, I just feel like the more confident you'll be, the more successful you'll be. Um, you know, but th this is, again, I wish I could tell my younger self all this and it sort of sounds, yeah. feels easier to say than to do. Yeah. Why would why do you think social storytelling is so important? Why stories? You know, I had somebody tell me once that there are six words that if you say them to anybody, they will trigger a part of the brain. And the words are, let me tell you a story. Mm. And there's something that's universal about stories and the way that it captures our attention and our engagement and our curiosity. Some of the best sort of human traits are are, are like fired up when we when we know there's a story coming what can we learn what does this mean what happened tell me more right and i think you know i i think for anybody who has kids when you stop reading a story like halfway through they're like no 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 like what you have to keep going right and it's kind of wonderful in a way to to see that because um but it does require it asks of us to be this listener and somebody who is you know paying attention if you will and I think that to me, stories are the way that knowledge is passed on, yes, but perhaps more importantly, experience and wisdom. Um, for a time, I had this idea of a product that was like a wisdom engine. You know, these days we think about search for knowledge and, and understanding facts and, mm. you know, all of that. But what about all this tremendous wisdom that, that, that we all possess? And how do we find that from other people? And you know, we can read about it in books and, and learn philosophy and all of that. It used to be that we would sign up as as human beings in a philosophy house. That that was we would sort of ascribe to a particular philosophy, and mm -hmm. that was our way of looking at the world. And you know, we were a Stoic, and that's kind of what we thought. You know, and so we would we talk about that and think about it and discuss it with people. And you know, these days, of course, there's some of that with faith or with religion, but philosophically, I feel like stories contain so much of that philosophy and so much we can learn from them. And they, 
you know, they manifest in different ways, movie, TV show, Mm -hmm. a commercial, like an ad can be a little bit of a story, a website, an email. Like, I just think that there's a universal, there's there's a finite number of universal truths that I feel like appear in an infinite number of stories. And I think it's kind of what people would say, like, there are really only 16 original stories in the world. And they're just like a million different ways to tell the same story over and over again throughout history. But I think that we're always, it's one of the best ways for people to learn and to capture something that feels fundamentally important as human beings. Mm-hmm. And we started by trying to tell people things through cave drawings, right? We'd say yeah. like, look, just pay attention to this thing. Yeah. I don't know how to like speak your language or get you to listen to me, but I'm going to like draw it here and just like, look at this thing. Right. And, you know, and now we're TikTok, people are like, you know, scrolling through TikToks, like bup, 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 don't care about, nope, 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 nope. Right. And we've started to lose people's attention spans. And this is my great concern with stories mm-hmm. is that they're going to be lost because people can't pay attention for more than a few seconds. When I watch films now, I'm like, can we hold a shot for longer than two seconds before we have to go to the next thing and the next thing and the next, let's read the person's expression. Yeah. Let's sit for a second in this moment. I get that the world's moving at a faster pace and I don't want to be the fuddy duddy. Who's like, can we go back to fax machines and like slow everything <laughs> down? I'm on the cutting edge. I like being out on the frontier, but there's something about, a linear understanding of something that requires a story to capture people's attention and to learn. And if you aren't able to do that or don't have that opportunity, I, I feel like we're losing something mm-hmm. um, as a, as a species, as a society. I agree. Well, that, I agree. I'll get off my soapbox now. No, no, I agree <laughs> because I think stories pull you in, right? Uh, as you said, let me tell you a story. And that naturally just makes people lean in and be yes, like, Oh, yes. ooh, what's coming next? Yes. So, Question uh, for you, kind of going back to candidates and interviewing, mm-hmm. how can one tell their story in a short, is there like, are there any tips in terms of how a candidate in an interview can just authentically show who they are, whether it's through their resume or in the interview process that is concise? I mean, they can't really start the interview with like, let me tell you a story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, But you know, a, tr- a traditional question is like, tell me about yourself. You know, how did yeah. you get started? So are there any recommendations that you can leave our audience with in terms of how to be able to weave their story into the facts of what it is that they do? Hmm. I would love, I love when people can tell a story in a uh, I'm going to see if I can describe this in the right way, but like a a humbly confident manner. So, in other words, they're aware, they're self-aware enough of their of the their place in their own story, mm-hmm. such that they can tell it in a sort of a you know a articulate way. They can describe what they learned, maybe uh, you know, throughout their life and their career. But then they're not saying it in a way that's sort of like, well, I've figured it all out. And just like everybody out of my way, and obviously you should hire me. Mm-hmm. It's more a bit of a uh, a journey and kind of giving you a sense of how they got here. And I love being pulled into those stories and, and people talking about, you know, I, I, I went through this health uh, scare, but I what I discovered about myself was this. And then I went on to create this thing. And I thought I had figured it all out, but then this happened. And then I joined up with this person and we built this thing. And we did like, I love hearing those stories. Mm-hmm. I think where I get suspicious. And I remember when I was in journalism, early journalism classes, I had a writing professor who said, anytime you write a biography 
about somebody, you've got to include a nose picker, <laughs> like a, something about the person that isn't this lofty, ah. they were this great, whatever, right? We all have our nose pickers about ourselves. Nobody's a perfect person. And I think when we go into an interview, the sense is to project this, like, I'm perfect. Not only am I perfect, but I'm perfect for the job. And clearly you should hire me and like, let's get to it. And sometimes I think younger people even are unsure of where the balance is. They don't want to seem like they're not confident. On the other hand, if you're overconfident, people tend to sort of lean back a little bit. They're like, all right, well, sorry, the room's not big enough for your ego, but you know, and so I think there's some amount of that, that, that needs to come into how you, how you convey yourself. Um, and just, admit that you have your own failings, right? We all have our nose picker kind of things that we can highlight. Like, you know, the, the, the classic kind of thing is right. When people say like, well, what's the, uh, what's a negative attribute you would say about yourself? Like in your own story, and the, the one that people have been told not to say is like, I'm too much of a perfectionist. Yeah. Right. I just want to say, right. Oh, are you, Oh, you're too much of a, what a cross to bear, right. You're just this too much of a perfection, right. Versus something like, you know, I have a, if someone were to ask me, what is my nose picker? I would say, and I've done all these sort of different personality tests. And I, it's also, it's sort of like scary and exciting to kind of learn these things about yourself. But I feel like one of the things for me that can be a nose picker is that I consider myself a, a, a leader with passion, somebody who wants to move forward as solutions oriented. Hey, everybody, like, let's go this way. We'll figure it out. Like, come on, like, how should you do this? Great. Awesome idea. Let's do it. Come on. Right. And it, and then the flip side of that, in terms of the optics of it, is that can be seen as like a little too intense or people are like, mm -hmm. like, okay, well, just Daniel, slow down and okay, well, let's pause for a minute and talk about all this and be a little more measured. So, and I can get kind of caught up in my head overthinking that too. Mm. So I love when I can observe somebody else who's great at all of this, this kind of like being humbly confident or however you sort of think about it and observing them and saying like, I, I want to be like that. That's how I want to be. And getting out of my own way sometimes, because I think also I can be a little too Canadian. I'm from Canada originally. I feel like I'm an honorary New Yorker after 16 years, but I can be a little too Canadian and think, you know, I need to defer to others or not be as, you know, a little forthright in, in what I think or my opinions. Um, and, and Canadians are terrible at apologizing all the time and wanting to be liked because we're just, just like America's hat you know, up there and, you know, gosh, darn it. I hope people think we're all right in the world. And, you know, so <laughs> rather than being this kind of like bold, you know, American, I know what's, we can do this and, you know, might, you know, so, so you I have just conflict, the two of you, often they're in there, like just wrestling away. And, um, I've tried to smooth those waters to some degree and, be a little more of like the calm, like the duck, you know, with the feet under the water the paddling and I'm just the duck or the, you know, I don't want to say swan. I don't quite put myself in that category. But they're, they're paddling really, really fast. They're pad they are paddling fast. <laughs> and there's definitely that side of me, you know, beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. um, but I know people don't like to see that because it makes them <laughs> anxious. You know? Yes, like, they just like, like the soft floating <laughs> on the water. Just, right. Like, how does he do it? Yes, um, exactly. Yes, exactly. So. That's so funny. But uh, well, brings it back to authenticity, right? Like if you're in that interview yeah. and you can't show up as who you are. Yeah. Then and I think that and, and if people, if for whatever reason it doesn't work out um, and my gosh, we've all had those moments. 
um, then you sort of say, okay, it just wasn't meant to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is something else I've needed to uh, learn over the course of my career is that the more you can be your authentic self and live in the moment and whatever's going on and accept that, you know, there, there will be an outcome from that. It may not be exactly what you'd imagine. If it isn't, then okay. But maybe sort of no expectations, I think is another thing. You know, I think we all put, sometimes we put high expectations We put it on ourselves or on a situation or we want this thing and we push ourselves and that can come across too. Or it's like, just, wow. Okay. Whoa. Like to feel your kind of like, again, goes back to the intensity. And so I think I've needed to regulate that and modulate that in some ways. And just, you know, a little bit, the, you know, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers mm-hmm. asked, asked children to, uh, or ask parents to say to their children, I love you just the way you are. Right. And I think if you can, you know, do that with yourself in a little bit of a, you know, self-affirming sort of a way, which I know that this can all sound a little too out there for some people, but if you can have these kinds of conversations with yourself and really like who you are, and when you go into a job interview or uh, to have a discussion with somebody, allow that authentic self to come out. Ideally, it connects with that person. And if it doesn't, then it wasn't meant to be. And rather than sort of regretting it or trying to force it, think, okay, on to the next and, you know, see what there's always another adventure or opportunity Mm -hmm. out there. Yeah, good, good point. I mean, if we don't show up as our authentic self and we put on airs on the interview during the interview, certainly that's something when we show up to the job, day after day, day after day, it has to be our authentic self. There's no way that we would want to, or even, or can hold up the pretense. It's just not going to work. It's not going to be the right job. It's not. And that's when you drift into, and you know, I don't know how many people have read Catcher in the Rye recently, Mm -hmm. but you start to become Holden Caulfield and you just feel like a phony. Mm -hmm. And I, and there, I have had jobs where I felt like a phony because I sort of got my way in the door, if you will. And then, by the and then a month or two months later, uh, you know, uh, it started to feel awful, and then it just goes down. Yeah, and, and it's really hard to recover from that. And so, rather than trying to come up with this fake story or this is like what I think is I when I when I interview younger people now, mm-hmm. I would way rather they tell me that they don't have a ton of experience, but they're really want to learn, or that they you know haven't done this thing yet but they did this thing and here's what they discovered. Like, great. Tell me, I mean, at Google, when we would hire people and I was involved in a lot of different interviews and, and hiring people at Google, I think you could actually get a badge internally at Google. I think mine got up to 75 or whatever it was over you know six years. So anyway, enough people that I loved just that experience. And there were different quadrants that you would sort of assess you know, as people would come in and role related knowledge and, you know, uh, what was their experience and just all of this stuff. But to me, and googliness was one which people mm-hmm. still probably have a hard time kind of figuring out. But the one that to me was most important was categorized as GCA. So general cognitive ability. Mm-hmm. And, and the way that that was expressed to me was not is the person smart or not, or what was their SAT or what's their, mm-hmm. that doesn't matter. It's could that person, if you brought them in under one particular job description. And let's say that product went away for whatever reason, sunsetted, it wasn't renewed or funded again. Could that person 
be moved over to a completely different job, different team, different product, whole other thing, and perform and excel in that environment because mm-hmm. they have that general cognitive ability to adapt to a whole different thing. And if the answer is yes, that you think that that person scores high there, that to me was the most, perhaps the most valuable aspect of, of evaluating somebody because that's what we're all asked to do is mm-hmm. to adapt, be solutions oriented, have the growth mindset, all of these attributes we look for in people. And I, when I came across somebody who I felt possessed that, and there are people who I hired at Google who are still there, and I love seeing the arc of their career. And in my head, I'm like, I knew that they would be that person. I'm like, mm-hmm. I told you, Google people, I don't work there anymore. You know what I mean? I just, I'm like, yes, I'm like in the background cheering them on because I think this is exactly what companies need are these mm-hmm. people who can, who have that neuroplasticity and and growth mindset and can adapt because companies change even big companies that think they're never going to change yeah one of yeah one of our core values at artisan is agility it's agility agility of thought and action because at least in the 27 years we've had we've had artisan i mean our clients have changed drastically from exacto knives and paste up boards to where we are today. And it will probably continue changing and evolving. Look, we were just talking about AR and VR and where is the world going? Uh, So agility is, I think that fits into the cognitive general, GCA general cognitive abilities, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have, I'll ask you this as a final question. Did you have a favorite interview question that you always ask. I always hear Google questions are pretty unique, but what was your favorite question to ask? I mean, I know some of the Google questions, I mean, like, I think there are even like sites dedicated to like trying to anticipate what the questions are. And for a long time, they were like, are the questions going to be like, why is a, I know it's a manhole cover, a person hole cover round, you know, like just these kinds of things, right? Like, uh, I don't know, because the equipment, anyway, people would obsess over these things, right? I, I gave a talk about this recently about failure and, and what it means to, to fail. And I always loved hearing people share their stories of failure. And I think it's, to me, it's, it's kind of, if people have that like failure story, <laughs> like they know, you know, what that failure moment was and they can mm-hmm. identify it and, and they can express it and talk about it in a way that you you can see that they've clearly sort of evolved through it and, mm-hmm. you know, taken what they can from it. And I read recently about the concept of failure compost, that even though you may have failed a project, failed an idea, whatever it was, you can sort of take some of that and turn it into fertilizer for, you know, your next, uh, project. Oh, I like that. that Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to give full credit to the Google X uh, team. It was part of their moonshot, uh, email, but they were describing this whole concept of failure compost. And Mm. I just think there's something wonderfully sort of like a virtuous cycle of, of life almost in a way, because people can put so much of themselves into something and it fails. And if, if you can, go through that and see how it refined you and then come out the other side and remember to not identify yourself as a failure and to be able to say, yes, I failed, but here's what I learned Mm -hmm. and I'm ready for the next thing. I mean, you know, someone like Michael Jordan is, is 
famous for his success, of course, but m one of his quotes that I think people love to pull on is the number of times he missed shots and yeah. was, was given the ball at the last second to win the game and missed. And he says, you know, I failed over and over and over again, and that's why I succeeded. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful way to think about success. I mean, there's a tremendous book by Shrikumar Rao, who's a Columbia Business School um, professor and has this whole framework around uh, how to approach your life and, and business. And anyway, the book's called, Are You Ready to Succeed? And it's just, to me, the flip of that, of course, is in your head, like, are you ready to fail? Yeah. No, I don't want to fail, right? But so how do you kind of think about that and cope with it and, and, and ideally thrive out of those kinds of situations? So anyway, that was my favorite question. And I always loved hearing about it. It was never any judgment. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not up to uh, So it, I just loved having those conversations with people. So Well, it brings us back to being authentic, right? Yes, yes, you can, yes. You, you cannot be authentic if you've never failed before, because we all have at some point. We've all fallen down and then gotten up, dusted ourselves off and said, okay, right. now, now, now what? Now where do I go? And I think it gets to a path of trust much faster, and especially in an interview or when you're meeting somebody for the first time, if you can acknowledge that place, because... You know, that that to me is what helps to, to build and, and broker trust is, you know, and ideally when you get the job and you go through that together and you're like up, down, you fail, you succeed, right? That brings people together. It's like that connective tissue of like in the trenches, you're like figuring it out together. But if you can kind of get that in the early moments with somebody and kind mm -hmm. of understand it and then be a bit vulnerable, um, I just think they're on a, a great path. Um, so. Beautiful. Beautiful words. And uh, I think a great lesson, uh, just the authenticity. I see it so much in, you know, when you know, we interview hundreds of candidates in a, you know, in a, in a given time period. And I cannot tell you how many people have told me you know, when I've asked them, so what happened at the previous job? You know, why did you leave? Like there's hardly anyone's ever said, oh, I was fired. And then you do a, and then you yeah. do the uh, reference check, and it comes back that they were fired. Well, just say right. it, just say yeah. it, and just say it, and share why, and you know, yeah. let's not have these surprises, you know, in a little box that's going to pop up like a jack in the box. Right. So this goes back to what you were saying: just being authentic. What's the lesson learned? What did you, you know, what what happened? What was the circumstances? What did you do? What did you not do? And what have you learned from that? So. Exactly. Yeah. Oh. Well, I, I think that the gardeners must have stopped to listen in on our conversation or something because yeah, I couldn't it's nice hear and anything. Quiet. Yeah, it's I nice. <laughs> no, it's they're they're done. They're done. Okay. <laughs> they were buzzing away at the height of our conversation. So I'll <laughs> listen and see what they said. But you know what? We're, we're being authentic here. So <laughs> we did. We pers we persevered through we it. We did. Caddy. We did. Yep. Thank yep. you so much, Daniel, for being here and sharing. And I'd love to just continue our chat um, about some of the other things that we've talked about. But so thank you for sharing your insight about storytelling and personal brand and interviewing and all those good things. It was truly my pleasure. I have goosebumps from our conversation. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Artisan Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Artisan Creative, a staffing and recruitment firm specializing in creative, marketing, and digital talent. 
You can find us online at artisancreative.com or via social channels at artisancreative. We look forward to connecting. Thank you.